Ron Dirks fam. It's your host, Ron Rapitalo, here on the mic. And I've got my friend that I used to work with at New Leaders, Mary Rice Booth, coming on the mic. And we discussed the importance of capturing the depth of her work and how to solve for it, especially with the book that she just came out with that talks about a rubric and competencies for leaders of color to not only survive, but thrive in their work in school systems. So we talk a lot about that and we talk about the power of coalition building and the power of working together. So check out the book, check out Mary. And this episode is sponsored by Leverage Publishing Group. Find us to ghostwrite, edit, and publish your first book. Peace. What is going on, Ronderings Universe? I am psyched to have a number of concentric circles overlap here in having Dr. Mary Rice Booth here on the mic with me. We are both NYU alums and realize that we have a good friend in common. Shout out to our homeboy, Jamel Oster-Sweat, who I got to ask him offline if he needs to be a guest here on Ronderings. And then we worked at New Leaders together for many, many years and also running a lot of similar K-12 education spaces. So, Mary, welcome on the mic. What is going on with you today? Well, thanks for having me, Ron. Um, good, to, to, good to be here. And um, yeah, it's feeling yeah. pretty good for a Monday. Good stuff. Well, before I have you uh, dive in, you know, it's really interesting that when I saw the totality of your experience, right, on LinkedIn, that I was like, oh, wait a second, like, we have a lot of, like, people in common, too, including just past podcast guests on Ronderings, your boss, yes. Dr. Nancy Gutierrez. <laughs> and so it's just like, it. It I, I always laugh at, like, how small the world gets when I let off with, like, all these concentric circles, like, oh, my God, Mary and I know a lot of the same people. Yes, yes. It, it is. I always call it like two degrees of a uh, new leader separation, though. Like I feel oh like, my God. yeah, <laughs> right. That new leaders world is is huge. It is right. It's all. I would say it rivals the Teach for America world. I think you it know, does. People don't often think like I think you have to know the ed space to know what you said about new leaders. But I think people from afar often think like, oh, it's Teach for America. It's like the Peace Corps, of course. If you did like, but I'm like, no. And Ed, I think new leaders has this deep tentacles and networking with lots of people. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty amazing. But I I appreciate it. Appreciate knowing that no matter what, I feel like no matter what conference yeah. I go to, I will. It's bound for me to find at least in one new leaders person or somebody else that I've right. been connected to. Um, so it's nice. It always feels like I'm just kind of coming home over and over again. Ah, concept of feeling home wherever you go. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mary, let's talk about your story. Share with the audience your story. Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, when I usually share my story, I always talk about the idea of this generational experience that, that I have and kind of that's what brings me up in the morning. That, that, you know, when I see my how my mom was raised in the 40s and 50s in Arkansas um, and the low expectations that were put on her are the same low expectations that was put on me being raised in Wisconsin in the 80s and 90s which is the same expect, low expectations that was put on my daughter 
in you know the 2020 and when we moved to Texas. But um, I feel like my story is actually grounded and rooted in the cotton fields of Arkansas. My parents were both cotton pickers. Both okay. started at four and five years old and went to school around the cotton picking season. Literally when they went to school is when the white kids didn't go to school and vice versa, because that right. was that was their that was their job, right? That was the main focus was to 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 pick cotton. And I feel like so much of how they raised me, which is in turn kind of how I am and how I kind of interact with the world comes from their experiences in those fields. So it was funny. I was just at a conference this past weekend and I, you know, sharing the story and somebody was, was um, later on was talking about, you know, they were from Arkansas and I'm like, you know, I've never been there. Like I've never been mm. to Arkansas, yeah. but yet so much of who I am, I think is from that place and space of time. So that's my story. I mean, I think that's, yeah, I think that the the inner part of who of uh, of how I interact with the world is, is so much, you know, the genesis is there. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to ask a Skip Gates question based on the brilliant show he has, Finding Your Roots. Like, what do you know from your parents' story and anything you know from, you know, grandparents and other folks about what it was like working on those cotton fields of Arkansas that then you tie into the roots and foundation of who you are today. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's surprising at all that I'm in education because of that. Right. So mm. because education was so limited to my parents, I think they have, they so much centered it for me and my, my brothers and sisters and just like wanting to make sure that for us, we could choose education first versus for them where they had to choose a second or third Right. I think was you know I think that is the uh, is the biggest piece, and I think for them, it was you know it's it's a completely separate world, right? When they when they're this you know it's the segregated South, and yeah. it was an all black schoolhouse, and it was literally one one room schoolhouses that they were they were attending, and they would get the the leftovers textbooks from the, from the from the white school that was kind of dilapidated and they would get the you know the li- the library books my mom said that she was um she was responsible for always unpacking the books and the bookmobile would come every two weeks to their school and they would get the the new cycle of books that they would be able to 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 read in that time and so i think mm-hmm. all all of that and all of those experiences definitely kind of that kind of, it did kind of create this experience of education and centering education. And I think the fact mm. is kind of, they so much pushed education, you know, they, they, were, they were able to kind of get us into these, these Christian schools that helped in, in private schools for a lot of my upbringing, which gave me the academic exposure but was not culturally relevant or culturally competent at all, right? right. And so, mm-hmm. which I think even propelled me even more to actually get into education, recognizing how do I combine high ag- academic expectations should be and need to be culturally competent, right? And so how do we make sure that those are, are synonymous with each other? And I think that, again, is, is what, uh, what propels me why I became a teacher, why I became a principal, why I became right. you know, a leader in, in all of that, because I think 
it has to be together. Mm. Well, walk us through, was there a particular moment for you, Mary, you knew like, hey, you know what, I'm definitely going to teach, right? Because it sounds like you knew you would be in education. Right. Was there a particular, I always like, this almost sounds like, you know, the, why do you teach questions? Yes, that is the, why do you teach questions? I'm curious if there's uh, something you'd want to elevate for the audience here in terms of that moment or moments. Yeah. I mean, I think I resisted it, to be honest. Right. So I, you know, we are a similar experience. I went to NYU. I feel like it's a degree that NYU made up. It's called Metropolitan Studies. Right. So I, wow. I, had, a, <laughs> I had a chance to, you know, to take classes basically in anything, really. It was like anything that had to do with being in the city, I could take a class in. I think it was my junior year of college when I started to take I'm like, oh, let me be, do, let, me, let me do an education minor just as a as a backup safe fault, right? Like, let me just kind of do this just so that, especially since many of my, my credits were transferring anyway. Um, and then I started teaching after school programs um, as I, again, as a way just to generate some income um, for myself mm. and to be able to, to see how do, what is my teaching that I was doing and my learning I was doing in my education courses, how was it applying? in the school setting. And after being in the after-school nonprofit world for a while, again, I realized like I'm seeing kids after the fact, right? Like after the school day when trying to help them catch up and trying to help them, you know, uh, experience and see how education can be a positive, even though they may be struggling. I said, it would be so much better if I was actually there during the school day, right? And during, you know, during that time. And so I went through uh, teaching fellows, New York City teaching fellows in order to become a teacher. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that was, you know, it was a, I resisted it for a minute. And it's funny when I did decide, I applied to the program and I got in and my mom's just like, see, I told you you were going to become a teacher. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you only would have listened to me, see, you wouldn't have like gone through this struggle to like figure it out. But like, once you went, it sounds like you went through that journey, it stuck. You knew yeah. it was the right place for you to be. Yeah. Yeah. I always feel like, you know, and that's something that has always stuck with me. Like, I feel like I'm always a teacher first, no matter what I'm doing. I Mm. always go back to, you know, I'm in this space to teach. I mean, my pupils may look different. They may be a little bit older or a little bit, you know, um, more circumstances. Um, But I always feel like I'm always a teacher. And if I had, if I went back and became an English teacher tomorrow, I would be completely satisfied. Um, I just, uh, Mm. I just loved, I just loved teaching. I loved the, the, Seeing the the light bulbs go off um, with yeah. your students is some you know there's nothing like that. Yeah, well, obviously you've been in K twelve education the duration of your career, right? Yep. You now have been working at a national ed nonprofit that does a ton of leadership development throughout the country called the Leadership Academy. So, and you wrote a book, which is what I want to make sure we like center yes. the next question on. And let me make sure I get the title right. I want to say, Leading Within Systems of Inequity in Education, A Liberation Guide for Leaders of Color. What? If there's not a more like concrete title <laughs> that I've seen for a ed book. So why did you write this book? What, what was the genesis of it? Yeah, it actually, it started in parallel to my journey at the Leadership Academy. Um, actually, mm. probably before then. And you may have experienced the same thing. The further and further that I got up in my 
in the hierarchy of, of leadership, either at within the um, traditional school system or in the nonprofit fields, I feel like the more and more my intersectional identities became the topic of conversation. And it was really just center to who I was. It was never just kind of, you know, Mary's did this, like, oh, Mary is a, you know, young Black woman, do, right? So it was, it was always right. the, the topic of conversation. And then in 2018, when I became the equity officer at the Leadership Academy after um, before my guest, Nancy, Nancy Gutierrez, became the CEO. It was the first job that I had that I assumed that did not have a book, standards, an association. I mean, you got to do what I think all, the rest of us knew when you had gotten those roles. And there are a number, predominantly Black women, who got into these kinds of roles. Like, oh, you're asked to create from scratch. And depending on what kind of budget or or you know, what you were given, right? You had to make the role from there not being a playbook for you. Yeah, right. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And just as you mentioned, it was mostly a, a lot of Black women or a lot of other, you know, folks that are Black and brown. And so I was just like, wait a second. Why should I have, I'm not going to create, recreate the wheel here. How can I connect to other people? Right. So um, again, our, our new leaders connection that my, my network is pretty, pretty decent size. And so I started kind of talking to people that mm. were in similar roles and doing similar things um, and also navigating this white space um, in a black and brown body. And every single conversation after I was like, Wow, like I was completely full. Like I like felt rejuvenated. I felt recommitted. Mm. And also, also at the end of every conversation, the people ask, "Well, who else are you talking to? Can I talk to them? Can I be connected?" Right. And so mm. I recognized the importance of I couldn't keep this to myself. And if I could paint it forward, which I think is is a, a really another kind of central value for me is to stay connected and to support those that are coming up behind me. How do I ensure that folks ha- don't have to feel like I felt in that space? And so that was really the the genesis of the book is I wanted, I wrote it for myself, but I also wrote it for my, um, my past self, um, as well as for those folks mm. that are coming behind me to know that if you are making the decision to stay leading within an inequitable system, leading within a white space, that you should not be have to suffer, right? Like it does not equal, mm, right? Yes. Like, you know, like yeah. how do you how do you do this work? Because there 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 is going to be those of us that are going to that can't survive within the space and are going to make the decision to leave. And I so definitely support them. Definitely understand that you should not, you know, if this institution is not for you, that you need to move on. But for those folks that made a decision, I'm going to stay inside it and I'm going to do some some work to, to dismantle the system and try and create a liberation um, space for myself, as well as for the students that I serve, that I need some I need something to help me get through it and be successful and to thrive, um, which I really I want to emphasize that thriving part, not just surviving part. And so that's mm. that really is the genesis of the book. And I wanted to ensure that it was not just history, even though I love history. So there's a lot of that in there. Right. <laughs> not just theory and research, but it was ex- as practical as possible, which is why the the word guide is part of that long title is because I wanted to make sure that people could walk, they could read a chapter or they could read a whole thing and they could be like, okay, I know, I just heard five people from this book say, this is what they did. That, and, I, mm-hmm. and I can do that too. Mm. 
So let's dive a little bit deeper. I'm very particularly intrigued by the term liberation guide. So what's kind of the, the central idea inside of the liberation guide for folks who have not yet read the book so they can go on the bookshelves or online and go buy the book? Yes, yes. So from the interviews and from what I did is I actually went back to community organizers. I think in education, sometimes we get stuck in only looking at other educators or only looking at business people <laughs> to kind of figure out what, what we want to do mm. and how we want to lead. But actually, when I when I look to see who are the folks that actually change systems, who actually made a difference, those are, those are actually community organizers. Those are the folks that actually made something move, right? And made the systems change. And so when I kind of put those two together, those ideas together is, is what we came up with is there's 10 competencies um, that are is the framework for the book. Mm. And they and it's broken down into three chunks. One is kind of what do I need to do as a, a leader of, of color or leader of the global majority, which I prefer individually. And kind of those are four competencies under under there. And the competencies are practice self-awareness, practice love and rage, practice self-care, and, mm. and leading with that outside your comfort zone. And then there's the interpersonal pieces, right? So as a leader, you're always interacting with, with others. And so that's, you know, attend to, attend to relationships, engage in authentic dialogue, create a coalition. And then there's the last piece, which is around institutional, right? So recognizing the fact that, again, as a leader, you are responsible for that institutional change. And that is um, taking a stand, being patient yet persistent, and then really kind of leading for liberated systems every single day. So those are the kind of the 10. Each of those competencies are broken down. There's actions underneath them. So again, what does it actually look and sound like to lead, to practice love and rage? What is, you know, what does it actually sound like to, to create a coalition? Mm. So that's kind of how it's, how it's, it's laid out. You are speaking my language, Mary, because you know, in K-12 ed, we love competencies don't <laughs> yes. we right yes I was like, we do. A second. why does this have something like i my brain starts going towards all, all the different like competency frameworks that i've seen right yeah like, let, let me ask this really nerdy question like that's also related a little bit to the personal like when you think of those 10 competencies and let's go back to the first time that Mary led at Harlem Renaissance High School. Yes, I'm taking your way back machine. You're like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> when you look at those competencies, are there one or two that stick out like, boy, if I would have known these things, I could have even been a more effective person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, probably all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 If I, yeah, exactly. If I could go back now, I feel like if my, my leadership was, is just at a different level now, but I mean, I think one piece in regards to longevity, I think I definitely fell into the trap of thinking I had to do it by myself. So I think about that create a coalition one and the fact that I, I had people reach out. I had folks kind of say, would you, do you want to be a part of this? And I was like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Not recognizing the power of being in community and having multiple people. I mean, that, that, you know, the principal job is such a lonely job, right? And so you're, (laughs) right. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, you can't really tell, tell any, be completely, you know, transparent about what's happening to anyone within your school building in a real authentic way. And so unless you are able to kind of like 
develop a, a really strong relationship with somebody on your leadership team, which I, I did have the opportunity to do that. But being able to connect with other people outside. And I think I did my final year, I did try to make space to connect with other other principals uh, within my network, because those were networks at the time, mm. and then your CDOE and things like that, because yeah. I finally had the awareness of like, okay, you are not, you're not magical. <laughs> you're not superhuman. So let's try to stop trying to act like that as yeah. you're trying to become a principal. So I think that's a huge one for me, which I, I wish shifted. Yeah. Isn't that such a big leadership lesson to learn? I feel for many of us from the global majority, one of the very early leadership lessons we learn, right, is that all that hard work and us being the incredible, and I'm using a basketball analogy, like really good, like solo player who drop points and get rebounds, it's not enough when you're leading a team, yeah. leading yeah. an org, right? You have to act and think and bring people around you differently, right? And so this idea of building coalition, the selfishly plug my book is very much the reason why I wrote my book, right? Leverage the people love and care about you personally, professionally. Because mm. building coalition, having a circle of champions seem like reasonably similar concepts as you go up in leadership as we, it's lonely. Yep. Or it yep. gets a lot more lonely the farther. Exactly. That I call like getting in the seat, mm-hmm. right? But if you're at the table, it still can feel quite lonely, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So my question for you is, I'm curious, like, who is in Mary's current circle of champions? Who are the people that, like, today you rely on, like, and how do you rely on those people? Like, what are those different, like, people do for you in your circle of champions? Yeah, um, and just to recognize, I have, I have multiple circles, um, <laughs> you know? <laughs> See? Matt, stop. No, that was the next question. Stop. <laughs> Ron, I've got multiple circles. And in fact, they form this oval uh, four dimensional. I'm like, oh my God, wait. We were not doing everything everywhere all at once. That's a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sorry about that. But it's no. definitely right Dr. Mary Rice Booth would like drop signs like seeing. <laughs> another level. Goodness. Yeah, yeah, and I, and again, I think again as I got up into leadership, I think it is important. So I definitely, I mean, you have the one within work, right? So you have the, the kind of the the formalized circles, and I have a you know a couple of ones in work. I have the my affinity group that you know that we work organizationally that we have, but also have you know the leadership our leadership team, right? So those kind of the folks that I can connect to internally, but externally, I have a a very tight group of other black women that mm. um, do you know similar work or adjacent work that they are my barometer right to kind of say like this is what just you know just happened can you tell me is it me is it them <laughs> right like can the brag can kind of be can kind of be that mirror for me and I could be that mirror for them um, and those are the folks that I kind of definitely make deliberate time to connect to. Right. And, so, and again, I think that's a, a huge leadership lesson for me is recognizing the fact that I got so busy about the work and not being able to actually create space and time to nurture me and, and what I needed in order to be successful. And then I have folks that are in kind of like formal organizations that are um, also kind of my coalitions as well. And those folks that, I, that I, I connect to that are, you know, like a EDLOC or like a, you know, um, different associations, yeah. right, yeah. that we have like that. So I think those are um, a couple of them. You know, I have my folks that I can just connect 
connect to and nerd out about running. <laughs> like that's all we talk about is just running and that kind of thing. So I make sure that I have these different different places to be and not not asking, you know, a couple of people to be everything for me, but recognizing mm-hmm. that there are folks that can do different things and I can do different things for them. I love you elevating that concept, right? Because to put in whatever you call your concept, right? Coalition building, circle of champions, your advisory board, you, you know, whatever, right? Is mm-hmm. figuring out where people are playing what roles where they're coming from, right? And then seeing that sometimes there's just tremendous overlap at times between what roles people play for you and that people can come in and out of these coalitions, these circle of champions over time, right? Because we evolve over time. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Because I think without without that, I've seen one of the things, I mean, there are two things I often think about with the way my brain works, right? It's like, if I don't have the people that like center me, this just gets infinitely harder. If not, I just don't want to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other part of it, so I think of like that that coalition building the people around me, but then it's also, you mentioned running and you knew I was going to ask you about running because I follow you on Facebook and I see you run a lot of marathons and you <laughs> talked about as one of the you know competencies in your book, like this idea of like taking care of yourself and surprise, surprise, I would argue that you running is a part of taking care of yourself. So Get us into your journey of how did how did Mary start running and start getting into marathons? What what was that journey? Yeah, it's funny. I think when we were at New Leaders together, we were it was kickboxing was my it was my outlet. That's right. <laughs> oh my god! That oh my god! Those are the days. Hit yes. Bag. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then from there, I started doing a couple five Ks just to kind of kind of just to do something different, right? To kind of balance sort of what it was out. Um, it was actually, it, it happened, did happen simultaneously. So in 2016, I moved, we moved from New York City to Texas, which was a, a huge life change <laughs> for, for me, just to yes. say the least. And I we changed because my father had passed. And so we were, we came to be closer to my mom. And at the same time, my sister, um, who runs a, a, a nonprofit in New York City, had gotten charity spots for the, the New York City half. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. And so she's like, and so she's looking for runners. She's like, you know, I'm like, I've never run a half marathon. I've only done 5Ks. I'm like, please talk to everybody else and then come, <laughs> come back to me. But, you yeah. know, she's a she's the oldest sister. So she like came back to me less than 24 hours. Like, okay, you're in. <laughs> Such oldest sibling behavior. My <laughs> gosh. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so classic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I had less than 12 weeks and usually that's, you know, usually a cycle for a, a race is like 12 to 16 weeks for a longer race. Right. So I had less than a usual cycle to, to figure out how to run my first half marathon. And it was incredible kind of what I got out of that process. Like, I think it was... Number one, it was I, I am naturally an introvert. Um, people sometimes don't believe that, but so I do get an energy from being by myself. And as a as a mother, a yeah. lot of times I don't get time by myself. So like I loved <laughs> I've heard that with my missus. It's just yes, like yes. We're, we're all talking at her. I'm like, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So running that amount of time gave me time by myself. It gave me a, another kind of space to, to grieve. And it also gave me this like amazing 
feeling of moving, pushing my body to another level and limit. And mm. I just loved it. Like, I just like, yeah. it was just this, it was incredible. And, and my sister makes fun of me now. She's like, oh, I'm like, you're the, it's your fault. Like, it's your fault that I got into this running thing. And now you're annoyed that I'm always running. But um, it's something I have, I literally have to do it every morning. Like, it's something that I, I have to do to start my day. And I will, I have no problem running in the dark. I usually do run in the dark. And I love to you can wear one of those like minor things to keep the, you, you wear like those special hats and things. Yes, yes, oh, I do. Kind of runner. Yes. See, that's, this levels this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's like, go for cold. Here we go. Run yes. for- <laughs> oh, my you goodness. know, yep. That's, that's me. That's I'm that girl. That's deep. Yeah, running to the dark every morning. Um, you know, if I if I get lucky, I can run to the time to see the sunrise, which is just another level Beautiful. of like connection, and it just kind of it sets me up for my day. And it's funny. I think my family now recognizes the fact. Number one, even even on vacation, there's like, okay, mom's gonna go run, and then we can start a day when she gets back. Like that's that's not that's a given. Yeah. But also, there's this like. Mom was last time you ran. Like my, like my, literally my, my personality is different if I don't have that that kind of outlet to start to to start the day. Yeah. And so yeah, I just got addicted pretty quickly yeah. and definitely love it. Yeah. So I'm going to ask what is I think you know the big question for me in terms of this idea of self care, the space you make for running something I'm sure that you observe, maybe even talk about in your book. I've observed it anecdotally talking to way too many K-12 leaders, particularly K-12 leaders of color, how few of them take time to do what you or I do. It doesn't have to be that you enjoy running. It doesn't have to be your power lifter like me. It's just right. you do something for movement a certain number of times a day and yep. build it in as you would having time to do observations of teachers in schools or other work that you do if you're in a, you know, a national ed nonprofit like you. So I guess the question I'd have for you is what advice would you have for the leaders of color you're talking to in this book, if it's not already in the book, around making space for this, making this something that's just as important as the very leading that I think oftentimes folks step into without thinking about what do I need to do to pour into myself mm-hmm. and therefore yeah. take care of myself, which say a strong part of that is some form of exercise and movement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I break down this, this competency into three areas. I f- I'd say, you know, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, how are you taking care of yourself? Right. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it does, it is, um, those three things are tied together. And the fact that it does look and sound differently for based on who you are and how much time yes. you have. And so that it doesn't have to be, this elaborate experience. Nobody, Isaac, I'm not asking anybody to run a marathon, but like how- You're just competitive. That's really, really comes down. Let's be clear. Like if folks don't know who Mary is, like Mary <laughs> is low key competitive. Let's be clear. I don't know if it's even low but key. Like, <laughs> very in your face competitive. Okay? <laughs> like, and what? Yeah, I, these are the times I'm running. Uh, can we track this? I've got my spreadsheet and whatnot. I'm um, training, but like, no, I know. I get, I do the same thing, my powerlift thing. Uh, there's nothing low key about being competitive for either of us. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, 
you know, exactly. You don't have, I'm not asking anybody to go all in or you'd have to, you know, you know, wear, wear the watch wherever you go and, you know, never take it off or anything like that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think it is incredibly important to do it. And I do, I do in the book talk about, this is the space that I do geek out on running a little bit, but I also kind of talk about the fact of it being a spiritual practice for so this is um, for, for folks, particularly in the Native American community, how running is connected to a spiritual experience. Mm, but then yes. also the fact that there's so many different ways to take care of yourself physically, and I give give those examples of what people do uh, within the book, if it be just stretching or if it's yoga or is it running or walking or whatever it may be or swimming or, you know, whatever it is that people, how do you find that space in order to make that happen? But I also recognize the fact that, you know, and also I talk about the fact that even though I feel like I'm really strong in how I take care of myself physically, but I also need to have those other pieces as well and how right. I have at, at points struggled in regards to finding other ways to take care of myself and how I, a lot of people talk about that, you know, adding in therapy and how I did add in therapy and how I added yes. in, you know, journal writing and, mm-hmm. and different ways that like, that's all, it's the composite of it all that I think yes. is, is really critical and that we can't ask just like I, I try to have have running be everything and it didn't work, right? And so how do you make sure that you kind of have a composite of things that you're using um, and leveraging? And then again, it's going to change and shift over time, but you got to be able to, to really take space for figuring out what works for you. Yeah. To keep threading on this, I was uh, humbled to be asked to lead a panel discussion at our former employer, New Leaders. Okay. In the age of COVID, this is like maybe 2021, maybe. Mm-hmm. And there were two amazing new leaders principles, surprise, surprise, because folks just come with the game, right? Who in the age of COVID had built and prioritized systems of wellness in their cultures. Because mm. you can make the really strong arguments like, well, Mary's going to take care of herself. Well, what is Mary doing as the leader? to be able to build that culture and what are the policies and systems and rituals and things that you're doing in the system. So I'm curious if you can riff with us on advice you'd have, whether in the book or that you have off the dome around how do you in the K-12 ed space, Mm -hmm. a nonprofit, a central office, a school, charter management org or whatever flavor it is, to build that system of wellness because it argues strongly. I always kid around like self-care is not Calgon and massages, y'all. Right. Like right. that feels, I'm a big fan of my <laughs> baths, right? And some like some Epsom salt and a good massage. But if that's all you do to be able to like do self-care, that's mm-hmm. just not enough. So I'm curious about mm-hmm. just thoughts you have on building systems of wellness within these cultures of K-12 ed. Yeah, and, and I think that that's an important thing because I think there's also an easy leadership strategy to try to just like layer it on. We're like, oh, I'll just let, you know, we'll we'll keep our system the same. <laughs> our system of ex- extending and, ex- you know, like tiring people and burning people out, but we'll just like layer on, oh, we'll bring in a massage therapist, you know, once a month, mm-hmm. right? Like on top of that. And I think it's like, that's actually, you're not, you're not getting to any type of roots of the of the problem, right? Um, and I so say is really figuring out how are you setting up your ways of working and your process of working to actually ensure staff 
staff success, staff longevity, and staff being able to feel as if they are they they can have the space to actually care for themselves. And so I think a lot of you have seen that a lot in the the nonprofit space of the changes between going in person versus virtual. Ooh, that's a big one. Yep. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, and you know, at the Leadership Academy we made the decision too and we were able to kind of you know, have have our get out of our lease. So we are now 100% virtual organization. And so now it is really in the hands of us individually as staff members. So how are we going to ensure that we're getting our work done in a place and space that might rise the best for us? But also like, how then are we managing our calendars, right? So I think the if you sometimes you look at my calendars and people have looked at my calendar, be like, this is like craziness, right? So like, how do you, (laughs) why is there seven blocks at the same time? What? what? Right. Exactly. (laughs) You know, like how are you doing like little things like, you know, ending, you know, starting meetings at five after or 10 after the hour or ending be, you know, five or 10 before the hour to give people break, right. To be able to kind of like to stretch and to move and to be able to, to think like that, how are we actually, assigning time to people, projects to people. I think that's a that's a huge one that we've been mm. talking about. It's just kind of like, yes, you can say, you know, on a spreadsheet, you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to be assigned to 150 days of doing different projects. But if one of your projects is working for a client that is in Texas that is man, you know, that is managing anti-CRT laws and all, all of that. <laughs> right. This is where the depth of the work doesn't often get captured as well. How do y'all capture that? Like, I'm curious, because this is a very good, fascinating senior leadership topic that I had in my former company. It's like capacity is ours, but it's not just ours. I'm curious how y'all have tried to solve for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we, we have, we're testing out right now so is to actually build in that extra time into a scope of work. Right. And like actually like theoretically being like, you know, if you are giving 12 days to this project, how are you also adding on four extra days for for the depth of this project or for the the need for for team to be able to connect and and to do some deep, you know, debriefing yeah. and and kind of like thinking through things. And so I think you have we're starting off to see if we can quantify it and and can and create it into our scopes of work. And then, you know, we'll, we'll go from there. But I think it really is, it has been an important journey for us to be able to say that yeah. one plus one doesn't always equal two when we, right. when we, based on the type of work that we're doing, based on the, the conditions in which we are doing the work as well. Yeah. I mean, that's something I think a call out, right? Especially with the kind of work that's happening when you're working with K-12 school systems, whether you're a nonprofit or whatever, a consult, whatever kind of provider that you are, right, is looking at, I would say, the intensity quotient of the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, you can probably figure out creating a rubric for that, right? There are probably things and themes that we've seen, right, where it's just like, is these systems of like whiteness like even deeper here? And like, what is the evidence that we know those things? And so like, you can then add on to that capacity up front and say, you know, for these kinds of projects, we know we're taking them on. And we know this is you working at maybe one and a half times as you normal would be versus another project because of yeah. exertion, yeah. right? Because the hour you run, it's going to very look different than the hour that Ron Rapital is a powerlifter runs. I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> like Ron, you okay? Like, Oh, hold on a second. I know I just ran uh 12 minute miles here, but uh, <laughs> like I'm ready to run another one, Ron. It's like, 
oh God, help. <laughs> right. So, but that, but that's, I, I give the analogy because I think it's very similar to like, yep. we at times, I think in our Western society, just look at ours as capacity and don't think around then in our equity work, how the work impacts us based on our lived experiences and identities. If we just, our systems are not built to capture those things because it assumes everyone's functioning the same. Right. Or at least right. functioning as the, what whiteness would look like. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And unless you like actually have these conversations, it's just then like, why would Mary have to write a book on a liberation guide for, you know, leaders of color? And you'd be like, but wait, Art, what did you just drive on all the same ways we drive me as a white leader in any other sector? I'm like, no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. It seems so obvious. Like, I think so. The last question I want to ask you about the book before I get into your rondering is, what impact do you want your book to have? And your wildest dreams, let's get five, 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. This book is in the way you'd want success to be. What impact does your book have? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think one, I see it as hopefully a retention strategy, right? So that, that. Mm -hmm. right? So it actually, systems are utilizing it and recognizing the fact of that we need to do something differently if we want our leaders on the global majority to, to, to be successful within our system and that we are actually utilizing this as a way to create those systems that are, Mm. that are, are successful and then that leaders of the global majority themselves can actually use this as a space for advocacy for for themselves and for others and be able to say mm. this is what this is what i need in order for this to happen and so i would i would want it to go to both both sides of the coin and recognizing that it isn't isn't critical for our system leaders and those of us who have power to actually change systems to to utilize it for as a blueprint and those for us who are leading within it um to use it as a space for us to be able to to leverage the um the collective voices that mm. are in this book um for us to be able to see and i you know we're not going to see it in our day in our lifetime liberating systems but how are we actually putting down the pieces right in order to in the framework in order for liberation to actually happen Mm. thank you mary for that wisdom we're ending around that time where gotta ask you the title of the podcast what is your rondering what's the lesson or value you would like to share with today's audience yeah I mean, I think it goes back to our conversation around coalition building. I think it's important for as leaders that we recognize the the value and the power of doing things together. And the fact that in our our history has told us that it is when we see folks come together across across cultures for a singular single focus a single need that we are all we all see value and we all see our different experiences as a result of that yeah. and so I'm um, recognizing the fact that that's powerful and don't feel as if you have to do anything by yourself um, or feel yeah. as if you have to be excelling in being superhuman because you're in a leadership mm-hmm. role that's not an expectation that will get us anywhere. Right. So that would be my last thought. And, the, and I appreciate you sharing that, Mary, because you said that a couple of times, and I'm sure in all the spaces you're in that I'm in, right, that this feeling of having to be, you know, Professor Charles Xavier's story, 
right? In order to be able to sustain and thrive in the space. And I think the thing I would ask for anyone who's ever watched these comics, right? I think the very way that Stan Lee and other folks who've written these comics and these movies talk about these superhuman characters, those things come with a price. Yes. And the question I ask around the price is it always, is it worth it? And I, I have to say, I'm thinking about the family that I have and the worth it in terms of like neglecting health, neglecting, you know, other things like, do I want to be the kind of leader that has this external amazing impact and yet I'm going to be around past 55? Exactly. I just, I just think that's a horrible trade-off to ask us to make. And that seems to be the implicit trade-off because I just watch too much of folks. I'm like, within our respective age group, Mary, for every you and I that you avidly run. It is a habit. It's like breathing in the morning. What I do, I, I, it almost feels like you want to talk about the smallest of circles of circles in our space. That makes me feel even lonely. I'm just like, I don't, I can, the fact that I can name the people that I think like avidly take care of themselves mm-hmm. on, on these two hands, right. that scares right. me. Like right. I'm literally thinking of names. Like mm-hmm. literally, I'm like, oh yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I go, oh, the other like, uh-oh. Because when I have these combos with folks, it's just like, oh, I wish I could make space for, oh, Ron, Mary, let's, it's so nice you do that. You know, it's almost like a, you get this pat on the back of like, it's not a pat on the back. This is how, why, this is why I thrive. Right. Yes, right. It's exactly. work, but it's like compound, it's comp, it's the ultimate compound interest. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, and again, I think it, it's, I think that there's a combination of number one, we've, we've been kind of socialized to this, the idea of the individual success, right. And kind of like that individualized thinking. Mm-hmm. And then also this idea of like having to, to do everything for other people. And yes. despite of kind of figuring out kind of how do we take care of ourselves and you even, you see, and I saw you see this in the community organizer space as well, right. So it's like, you have to, you need to be here in order to actually have lasting impact. Right. And if you're not here, then the work is not going to continue, right? So like, yes. how are you ensuring that you are here for the long run and that it's not always about you, right? Like, how do you also make ensuring that you have other folks that are doing similar work or you're building people's capacity to kind of continue the work so that you can take a break, you can take, right? You can, you know, take the vacation that you need in, in order to be successful. And so I think it's, and I feel like that is what liberation is, is being able to able to recognize the fact that we've been socialized to, to be in this certain way. And actually, that is not the way for us to be successful or to create any type of liberated societies. Um, and so the more and more we kind of kind of put our heels into this, you know, rise and grind type of a culture, right. and the, you know, the, the more that we're going to continue to see the same thing. Amen to that, Mary. Well, before I let you go, I'm going to give you space to promote the things going on in your work and your life. Could be the book, could be leadership guys, whatever you'd like to promote and how people can find these things. Yeah. Um, So definitely. So my my book, Leading Within Systems of Inequity in Education, a Liberation Guide for Leaders of Color, is available wherever books are sold. You know, bookshop.org is what I'll push because it supports independent booksellers, but also is available on Amazon. If you do do Amazon, I'll ask you to please rate and review the book. (laughs) So um, that's the the benefit of being on Amazon. And then you can always, you know, connect with me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. I have a a bi-monthly newsletter on Substack that you can um, connect to. And that's kind of where I 
share what I'm doing in the world, but also give some resources. And I also do a profile of a leader of the global majority every uh, every two weeks mm-hmm. as well. So cool. I have a lot of a lot of interviews that I didn't that's not included in the book. So that's my way to kind of profile them. Mm. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you are interested in, in having me come and talk about the book or do any um, any work around that, you can reach out. And then, yeah, if you are interested in, in really having a systems level approach to leadership development, um, you can definitely reach out to the Leadership Academy. And um, that's, that's the work that we do and that we are always interested and excited about partnering with districts that are looking to really think about culture responsive leadership and a system level scale. Beautiful. Well, Mary, I'll certainly make sure that all of these links are things that are in the show notes for this so people can find you and find these things. I got to say, Rondering's Universe, there's so much amazing work that Mary's doing as an individual, but systems work. And so, I mean, Mary, it has been a huge, huge pleasure to have you on Rondering. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ron. Awesome. Enjoyed our conversation. Absolutely. In the words of, uh, Deion Sanders, it's the prime time. We coming. And I know folks are down on him, but I've followed this man's career for 20 years. And yes, <laughs> I know that Colorado didn't do so hot in the standings. And yet I never bet against someone with that level of confidence and results. So I still use the tag. We come in. I even, look, I don't work for blenders. I got the gold sunglasses. I'm crazy <laughs> like that. But in this podcast, the great guests, We keep coming. So thank you, Mary, for being on. Thank you so much. All right. Peace, y'all. Brondrick's fam, what an incredible episode with my friend Mary. We can't do this alone, folks. If we are doing work to be able to build equity, particularly within K-12 education, coalition building is going to be key. So thank you, Mary, for talking to us about what your journeys look like from that, from the uh, cotton fields of where your family grew up in the South. Check out Mary's book on outlets, including bookshop.org. It's also on Amazon, Leading Within Systems of Inequity and Education, a liberation guide for leaders of color. Mary, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Ron Dring's universe, we keep coming. Peace.